Well, welcome back to Crazy Fate Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Erica. And I'm Steve. So, friends, we are in week two of our series for Advent 2022. As we are looking at some of the themes that um, we typically focus on throughout the season of Advent, last week we talked about hope and what it means to be hopeful um, in this season, even in the midst of everything that's going on in in the world around us. And so, Steve, where are we taking this week's episode? Well, today's theme, um, whether or not it goes directly with a candle that you may have at a nearby Advent wreath around you, uh, is peace. Um, and again, like we we said last time, like you gave a nod to Erica, the themes that we're taking a look at this year are kind of drawn from um, what are sometimes ascribed to be the themes that go with each of the candles on a four-candle Advent wreath, hope and peace and joy and love. Um, and while we're not exactly sure that those need to be written in stone in that particular order, <laughs> That's the order we're taking them in. Um, and I guess maybe a place to, to start is like, why? Why would, of all the things that you could be a theme for this season, why is peace a, a theme in Advent? Why is that something that we come back to? What is it that makes that a theme? Mm. And what, is it, what does it mean? I think part of the reason why peace is a theme is at least for me, when when you think of Christmas and you think of the baby Jesus and, you know, you think of Silent Night and all the all the peaceful hymns that we have <laughs> during this season. And, and you get that picture of that peaceful nativity. Um, it, it makes sense that peace is one of these themes. Um, but also because in, you know, the prophet Isaiah, he talks about the coming Messiah being the Prince of Peace. Okay. So part of this is because our hope in Advent is pointing toward Jesus, and because when the prophets think about what will the Messiah do, sometimes the the prophets talk about, ah, the Messiah will be the one who brings peace. Um, And maybe we'll talk in the course of this conversation about what that might have looked like or why there might have been that hope across centuries of the, the prophets. But it sure seems, at least in broad brushstrokes, that for a lot of ancient Israel's history, they were either plagued by wars with other countries or just sort of overrun by foreign empires one after another. So that, yeah, aching for, hoping for um, a time when they didn't have to send their sons out to go be mm-hmm. in the king's army or where they weren't worried about the Babylonians at the door besieging them or the Assyrians carrying away their children into exile. Yeah, the hope for it won't always be like this. That that seems that I, you get it why that would be something somebody hopes for. I, I guess a, a question I want to ask, and I, I don't know that I've, I've got any particular answer in mind, but it seems to me like this is a place where there might be, uh, I don't want to say dragons because I'm more worried about sentimentality. So there might be like cuddly, fuzzy dragons or something like that. <laughs> um, but we, we, we talked in the, the last episode about wanting to avoid sentimentality in advent and not let it just mm-hmm. be like um numbing ourselves or something like that and like there there's something that you were exactly right about like how comfortable and peaceable our our picturing of even the nativity story is maybe because it's so familiar um but a piece may wonder is whether it was actually as as quiet as we imagine it to be i mean like yep. like i'm i guess i'm glad that our home nativity sets don't have sound effects but like 
honestly, a story that takes place in either a barn or the downstairs shed area where the animals are kept. And then there's nonstop arrival of unexpected guests like shepherds. Um, and however much longer it takes for the Magi to get there, like, I'm not sure how much of that is quiet. Um, and yet we sort of have a lot of hymnody of like, Jesus doesn't make any crying because he's the perfect mm-hmm. little baby. When like, I'm not sure even that's the, the the gospels warrant that. Like, no, he's probably like any baby who cried a lot. And so like, I'm thinking nobody got any sleep for a while. But I guess I get like, I, like, like it, even like the actual birthing. Like, yeah. The, at least my experience was not quiet. Like mm-hmm. I was oh. making noise. All of the doctors and nurses were making noises. Um, you know, one one doctor encouraged me to cuss a lot. Like <laughs> and, I don't know. It's not that peaceful. It's and, even when even good good births that have no issues. Yeah. Are mm-hmm. peaceful. There's lots of fluids and yeah. <laughs> And granted, Mary probably didn't have any of the electrical equipment making noise, but like, it's a pretty noisy affair. Yeah, well, and I would think like in an era before any kind of medication to ease pain or anything like that, you're even more likely for it to be noisy. Whereas now there can be at least a possibility of medications that could mm-hmm. take the edge off of some of that. Um, but yeah, so I mean, like, I and I, I, like I get it because there are moments of this story that are peaceful, and I want to imagine at some point probably out of sheer exhaustion everybody went to sleep eventually on that after the birth of jesus um but like how do we avoid turning the 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 talk of jesus coming how do we avoid making it like i don't know like so so sentimentally saccharinely quiet or peaceable that we missed mm-hmm. that like there was noise and chaos the way uh the the way luke tells the story at least um and and i guess zooming out more in a, in a in a bigger sense how do we make sure that our talk of peace doesn't slide into apathy or indifference because like both can kind of look similar of just sort of not being bothered by stuff mm-hmm. um but it seems to me like if if there is a danger in uh american cultural christianity it's to turn this into a season of just like numbness from like the familiarity of seeing a million Christmas movies and not actually talking about peace, but about like, I don't know, like, like food coma when you've had so much to eat that you get sleepy. <laughs> so, so the way I think about peace is it's an onion. Okay. Ooh, right. Say more about there, it. There's different layers to okay. peace, right? Like I think so far what we've been talking about is that peaceful, idyllic, everything's fine okay um and that's peaceful to me right like Mm -hmm. it's that moment where post-birth like you've been kind of cleaned up the major like pain has passed and you get to hold your baby who's all clean now for the first time and it's like making that connection and like yeah we're all gonna be fine it's peaceful and now it's kind of quieting down um, and pretty soon I get to take a nap and eat <laughs> like peaceful. Yeah. It is that manger scene. It is everything's fine <laughs> at this moment. And I think that we can experience that, like that layer of peace at certain times, even when our world is falling apart, even if our country is, is experiencing conflict and violence, we can experience moments of peacefulness in Mm -hmm. our day-to-day life it is that enjoying a cup of coffee or tea before your kids wake up 
that's peaceful. It's getting to read a good book when the world is quiet, that's peaceful. Um, but I think that if you go a layer deep and experience peace, it's it's again that 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 absence of violence. It's that absence of pain and like it's a little bit deeper of like peace. Um, then there's like that peace, like you know, keep going down. There's that layer of peace of when, um, you know, I'm sure as religious professionals, we've all been in the hospital at deathbeds where the person is at peace, like they mm. are okay with giving up this earthly life. They know that something is going to meet them that is better than what they've experienced, and you know, they might be. Um, relieved and happy that they get to be reunited with a loved one that they've said goodbye to like decades ago or years ago or days ago. Um, but they're at peace with their death. Um, and so I think you can kind of just keep going of like, there are different layers to peace. And so it's not always just that peaceful, like top of the onion kind of type of peace that is often depicted in the manger scene. Sometimes it's the lack of violence of like, now my country's at peace. We're no longer being bombed. We're no longer whatever. We now finally have food and security. Like that's a different kind of peace. And it just kind of keeps going down as like different layers. I, I appreciate that, I, that image of, of layers to it. And that maybe allows us to talk about that the outside layers aren't wrong, but they are sometimes really dependent on external conditions being right. Mm -hmm. The same way we've talked before about, and maybe we'll talk next time about the difference between happiness and joy that like, yeah, it's great if everything's going your way and you get a good parking space and there's sunny weather and all that. And yeah, if you can eke out a moment of happiness and that great, but th there's a, the ability that we call joy to be lifted up even when you didn't get a good parking space and it's rainy, like that kind of thing, that maybe peace is a similar kind of thing, that there are times when it's quiet and calm and you've got your steaming cup of tea and a book to read or something like that, um, but that there's also a, a peace that is something deeper or uh, more substantive than just the external circumstances are pleasant right now. It reminds me of that, that line... Um, from Amanda Gorman's uh, poem from the inauguration um, that uh, quiet isn't always peace and that what just is, isn't always justice. And I, I like that idea mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. sometimes, sometimes we, we are so used to pairing peace and quiet that we assume anything quiet must also be peaceful. Um, but rather that maybe there's something deeper than just things are quiet, uh, but that there's something deeper to hope for or something deeper to work for that peace is about. Erica, you had mentioned earlier that not only uh, do we picture peaceableness in the scene of a very, very mm -hmm. tired Mary holding her baby, but that the prophets use the imagery of peace. Um, and I guess I wonder if you could say more about like what 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 comes to mind when we think about the the prophets in the Old Testament, the Hebrew prophets, and what they envision peace looking like, or what it means, or why it's worth hoping for. So. When Isaiah talks about the Prince of Peace, he also talks about the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Um, and in that passage, and then I think it's a couple chapters later, he talks, it might be the same chapter, I get it confused. Um, he talks about the animal kingdom and how natural enemies, the lion laying down with the lamb, the, the 
bear and, and the wolf laying down with, you know, one of their prey animals. Mm-hmm. And so peace is not just an absence of conflict, um, an absence of war, but it, it is a renewed kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, very much makes me think of Sarah's favorite chapter of scripture in Revelation 21, yeah. you know, that that idea that there will be no more war, no more tears, no more mourning, no more crying, because everything will be set back to the way it was intended to be in the Garden of Eden before the fall. It's, and it's, so that's what I hear and, and imagine when I read Isaiah. It's interesting, as, as you mentioned that, like, and make that connection to the end of the book of Revelation, because there's a through line there that by the time you get to the end of what we call Isaiah, like 65, 66, um, there is imagery and language of God making a whole new creation and new heavens and mm-hmm. a new earth that clearly the writer of Revelation is like riffing on, like like he's a, a improving musician, like taking a theme from somebody else. So that, yeah, like that whatever captivates the prophet Isaiah in imagining God's going to do something that will reorder reality so that old enemies no longer have to be enemies. Mm-hmm. And that will, that's on the order of a whole new creation that that's a, a through line that the new Testament carries with as well. Even peace, when we talk about a lack of war or conflict is tenuous. Right. It doesn't take much for that peace to be broken again. Where the peace that Isaiah speaks of, the peace that that is spoken of in Revelation, that that's no longer tenuous. Yeah. I, I think you've hit on something really, really important is that like, because what we are used to in our lives, and my goodness, for our lifetimes, very few of the years that we've been alive has our country not been at war with somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, my goodness, the war in Afghanistan had gone on so long it would have been legally allowed to drink. Um, uh, but um, we're so used to peace just being like a current geopolitical arrangement that like mm-hmm. currently nobody's attacking anybody, but we've all got our stockpiles of weapons so that when it happens or when someone provokes us, we're ready to go to war. Um, and one of the, like the, the, the idea that you point to there, both in Isaiah and in revelation is that ultimately our hope is like a whole new reordering where we don't do that anymore, where that's not a solution that we reach for anymore. That means a whole new way of being creation or a whole new way of being human. Even that's, that's uh, a line that that comes to mind from another place early in Isaiah um, that uh, comes up early in this year in the lectionary in Advent, where it envisions all the nations coming to the temple mount in Jerusalem and learning from God a new way to live. And there's this imagery of all the nations will come and they'll take their swords and they'll beat them into plowshares and their pruning hooks into spears. And then there's this additional line from Isaiah. He says, and they won't learn war anymore. And I think mm-hmm. that's an important idea that it's not just, we have all these weapons. I guess we've got to kill each other with them, but we've been teaching generation after generation that this is a way to solve problems for mm-hmm. as long as there's been humans around. Um, and that almost like our imagination is limited, that we can't imagine a way to be human or a way for me and my group to have security without I have to be able to threaten somebody else. That what Isaiah understands is, yeah, for there to be actual peace will mean a radical re reimagining or remaking of how we live together, a whole new kind of creation. So in my preparation for Advent this year, I've been... Um reading various commentaries as you do (laughs) and i read somewhere 
you know, in preparation for Advent to peace, where they were making the connection with um, John the Baptist's diet Uh and harmony. And harmony, I think, is often very similar to peace. Yeah, Mm -hmm. seems like it runs Um, parallel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were they were trying to make the connection of, um, you know, let's look at how bees live in the world mm, and live in harmony in the world of being able to go and eat, you know, have this uh, beneficial relationship with uh, plants, right? Mm-hmm. They, they pollinate the plants and in return they get to make honey. I don't fully understand how bees make honey, but. You, you know, you kind of get the gist of like they live in harmony with the world around them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these are all half baked thoughts, but like <laughs> it's very much like how can we learn something from that mm-hmm. to live in harmony, in peace with the <clears throat> world that we live in, yeah. Yeah. Um, where our actions are mutually beneficial for the things that we are like engaging in and ourselves without it being a like i take 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 without giving yeah um like how can we how can we do that and maybe that's um the wrong questions because that's all on like what do we do and not what does god do and with peace, it's very much like this is the peace that God gives us, not the peace that we somehow construct for ourselves. Like I said, these are all half-baked thoughts. Yeah. But I guess I think like, I, I, I get your concern about that eventually we should have some focus on the peace that God gives us opposed to what we achieve. And that seems like the Lutheran in me is like, yep, our big picture, we have to be about what God does rather than what we do. I, I get that. Um, but I guess I feel of, of all the church seasons especially – Advent is one that invites us to uh, act now in light of the promised future. And so if the idea mm-hmm. is that in some in some way or time, God remakes creation in such a way that we don't have to kill each other anymore, or we don't have to be at enmity with one another anymore, or we don't have to stockpile weapons to threaten each other with anymore, then to live in light of that, knowing that it feels out of step is to say, I will begin to live now. What are small gestures I can take now that begin to point toward that? Not like if I do a good enough job, I'll make world peace happen, but Mm -hmm. almost as like the way the prophets often did symbolic acts to say, as, as a symbol of what God was, was up, you know, up to or about to do in the world. And I wonder if, if that's a way we might talk about our lives too. What are things we can do now that point ahead to that promised new creation uh, where, where where creation is in harmony and we're in in harmony with it um but what could we do that points to that now and i I guess along those lines then maybe these aren't opposites the what do we do and what does god do but maybe they're two sides of the same coin so something possibly to be cautious of when when we start looking at what we can do to bring about peace um and I forget exactly who first pointed this out to me, but there's a big difference between being peacekeepers and being peacemakers. Okay. And, you know, Jesus in the Beatitudes calls us to be peacemakers, mm-hmm. not peacekeepers. Peacekeepers avoid conflict. Mm. Peacemakers work through conflict. Mm. And for that matter, like I, I could, I could imagine hearing the word peacekeeper as like, 
person who like if if I like the way the current order is, I want to mm-hmm. keep things. And like and that could also be like the bully and the bully's toadies being like I like how yeah. things are. Nobody's threatening me because I'm the bully, so I want to maintain this peace. Well, that's not really peace either. Which maybe points at that like mm-hmm. whatever genuine peace is, it's not just the absence of conflict, but that there's justice in there, or that nobody is getting stepped on, or the, and like you you suggested, Erica, that. To be, uh, uh, to be about peace in the right way isn't that we avoid conflict, but that we deal with it. And that maybe there's a certain set of uh, tactics or strategies that we will or will not use. I mean, like, I, again, mm-hmm. like, I, I think it's, it's telling to me that the, the voice in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, that is talking so much about peace is the prophets who regularly got themselves into trouble, but also were never the ones like saying, let's race up an army and kill our enemies. But were like, they knew that speaking their message was going to get them in trouble. And they were willing to bear that to get themselves thrown in jail or in the cistern or sawn into or whatever. Um, but that there, it wasn't like that kind of, we have to avoid conflict because no, somebody might be offended, but mm-hmm. also they weren't looking to, um, uh, raise up their own little militias or something like that. They their their willingness to be peaceful meant that they weren't going to take up weapons. They used words, and they knew that was that the, they they could be easily killed for it. What you sh- what you said a minute ago, Erica, reminds me of that great line by uh, James Baldwin that not everything that's faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Mm. Um, and the notion that like, I think to be really about the work of peace requires truth telling and requires being able to mm-hmm. deal with when there's conflict and, um, that to ultimately be about peacemaking is to decide there are some steps I won't take to enforce my will on you, even if you don't make that promise back. That if I say yeah. I refuse to, you know, uh, shoot you if you if I don't get my way or something like that, that's an act of peace that also can still tell the truth and say things are wrong. Or we need to address this injustice or we need to right this wrong. But that being peaceable is able to do that, but also to say there are some things out of bounds that I won't do no matter what you do to me. That reminds me like of the sit-ins of the civil rights era. Right, exactly. exactly. And a lot of the nonviolence that Martin Luther King Jr. and, and Gandhi even, you know, yeah. um worked towards, you know, that they would you know, I'm thinking of the sit-ins in particular here in the States, or they're different times, you know, they were attacked with fire hoses and right. police dogs and and yet they didn't fight back. And I think there you've really hit on like an important idea in this whole conversation about peace that like, it's not just that peace looks like nobody getting the fire hoses turned on them because sometimes you need to be, you need to have people who are willing to cross the Selma bridge. Some people Mm -hmm. need to be willing to do those things and know that that provokes conflict or forces people to uh, action or something like that. But the choice of the people who are part of the freedom riders or the, the people marching across the bridge or in the sit-ins had made the choice, no matter what they do to us, we will not respond with violence. We won't answer mm-hmm. evil with evil. And to me, like this is exactly uh, how all these ideas come together in certainly in the way of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, but but through the vision of the prophets as well, that idea of we have to be able to call out the rottenness in the world and say something is rotten in Denmark. If that's, I mean, something is bad Mm -hmm. when something is bad um, or something is unjust, but then it's, what do we do about it? And is it, I'm going to, you know, uh, beat you up because I don't like what you say, or I refuse to use that to get my way, but we need to find ways that we can address things. I, I think that's exactly what real peace is, but that's a lot more vigorous than just, I'm so comfortable. I fall asleep. Mm -hmm. 
there there's another piece of that idea of this sort of being a restless kind of piece if that's i, I realize it sounds kind of oxymoronic but um i i was years ago I, uh, an old pastor mentor pointed out to me and it's especially clear in some of the texts we've been talking about the swords beaten into plowshares and the peaceable kingdom imagery where uh wolves and lambs lie down together is how unnatural it is i mean like and he, that was his his language yeah. is like it means being willing to let go of just saying whatever we think is quote unquote natural is good and whatever is unnatural is automatically bad but rather god is about creating a new kind of order a new kind of nature altogether that we can't quite imagine i can't imagine how a world works where one animal doesn't eat another because that's the only way i know that the food cycle works right i mean like back to second grade me learning in science this is how the food cycle works one animal eats another um but to imagine with the prophets that God is capable of making a new ordering of things that I can't explain or understand how it works. And that because it runs counter to my experience of nature, I would say is unnatural. And yet that's exactly what the prophet envisions is a new kind of creation where animals don't have to be afraid of each other and where human beings are no longer having to kill each other or to be eaten by other animals or things like that. But that kind of vision requires being open to the idea that God's going to do something new that is unexpected to me. And sometimes that means might be scary to think about what's that going to look like rather than, I think sometimes we, we get the idea that peaceful automatically means familiar, but maybe mm -hmm. that peace is ultimately, um, I'm not going to get all Star Trekky, but the undiscovered country, like, and like, I'm pretty sure that that's, that's the, the whole gist in that Star Trek movie. The one that was called an undiscovered country is that peace is the undiscovered country. It's the, the idea of, of a, of a new kind of reality where we aren't killing each other, whether it's the Klingons and the Federation or one nation or another, it's, it's something that we've never been to. And yet somehow we'll feel home when we get there. Well, and I can, I'm with you. It's hard to think about the animal part of it. Because that's what we've learned. That's the food chain, everything. <laughs> but for me, I struggle even more so with the fact like there, there are people that just grate on my nerves. Yeah. Um, and they are fellow Christians. <laughs> and someday we're all going to be in heaven together. And the fact that they were no longer great on my nerves, like, yeah, I can't imagine. Yeah. That, that yeah. sounds great. And it sounds wonderful. And I'm excited for that day. But what does like how does that change our relationship? Right. Um, right. Right. Oh, you know, and, and that's what's like blows my mind to think about. Uh, have either of you seen the good place? Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, um, you know, a lot of that is like thinking about what does the afterlife look yeah, like yeah. Mm -hmm. and like the way that that show built up, this is what that system could look like. Yeah. Like, there's part of me that goes, oh no they got it completely wrong and then there's other parts of me that goes did they though <laughs> you, <laughs> did you know they? and it's because like it's so beyond our understanding and our yeah. experience yeah. that like it's true like i can't imagine what revelation 21 truly looks like even though it's my favorite bible yeah. chapter yeah. yeah um because i don't know what it looks like to not have grief Right. And if yeah. I no longer have grief, does that mean I still, do I still have joy? Right. Right. Mm. Like mm -hmm. how, how does emotions work sure. Sure. without some of those quote unquote negative emotions? Sure. And for that matter, like how many people who've gone through trauma, 
who are either the victims of violence or have seen uh, people who they care about be injured or killed in warfare or crime or whatever, like that has a way of becoming a part of your identity. And like, yeah. then there's that, I mean, like how many superhero movies or stories are there where the person who's become the villain is seeking to get revenge and somebody has to say getting revenge won't bring them back, but they don't know how to quit getting revenge mm-hmm. because that's their identity now. And I think if there's, if there's value to stories like that, it's that they are, only slight exaggerations of what normal humans go through. Maybe we don't have superpowers and go on vendettas, but for a lot of people who go through being hurt, it's hard not to know. It's it's hard. How do I be who I am without constantly seeking? I need to get revenge or be mm-hmm. ang- angry at somebody. And to imagine a way of being human and not being driven by those motivations. Yeah, it, it requires an act of faithful imagination, I think. I I guess to me, like, that's one of the things that I I find so uh, helpful and also provocative to me about all this talk about peace from the prophets is that, I mean, like, if if we're having a hard time, we who've heard these words all our lives and who've been, you know, in faith communities have recited these words for literally millennia, um, how ridiculous would they have sounded when Isaiah Mm -hmm. first says, hey, everybody, I got a crazy idea. What if we beat our swords into plat? Like they they got laughed out of town. They had to be dismissed like that's nonsense. Mm -hmm. Um, And that they were willing to say the unimaginable or to and that, you know, if if we're people who who say that these prophets are inspired by God, that God inspires something that sounds so far fetched uh, that 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 would have been laughable. And yet they were convinced, nope, this is exactly what God needs us to hear in this moment but that maybe that also calls us to imagine and to dare um those same kind of vision like what would what what does it look like to speak isaiah's provocative word in our day and our time for people who've already heard isaiah 2 or 11 of all their lives and it's become so familiar it just washes over them what are what are ways that we could witness for god's peaceable reign in a way that would be as helpfully shocking i guess I don't have an answer for that question, Steve, but I think that's part, <laughs> but that's part of the sentimentality we were talking about. In the yeah, episode. yeah. It's like, we've heard these words we've seen in the, you know, we've heard the nativity story. We know, we know the story, like the back of our hand. Yeah. And, and so when we hear these words again, beating, you know, swords and the plowshares, we're like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Isaiah talking about the sword. Yeah. yeah we, we know that one, you yeah. know, and we don't think about how absurd it was not only back then, but still today. Yeah. How do we beat our nuclear weapons? Right, right, right. Into something useful yeah. and helpful rather than something destructive. I know, I know. Oh, I'd this love to hear probably it. a rhetorical question, but like... <laughs> <laughs> No, make it real, make it literal. Can, I want to hear. You can I use hear. nuclear energy to power electricity sure right right like right. you can yeah, do that like right. it's something that we i think shy away from because uh those nuclear power plants have the ability to uh do bad things they can melt down like, right yeah they well. can melt down that's bad but like it's i don't know i think it calls for some creativity on our part yeah um mm-hmm. for any like and and I think it's just a completely different mindset of living yeah. of you know when we're so used to living in conflict mm-hmm. um to suddenly have to like shift gears and like go okay well now how do we live into peace yeah um you know it's it's something that 
I, I think Steve said earlier in this episode, we, we've been in Afghanistan, the war in Afghanistan stretched on so long, mm-hmm. it could legally drink. You know, there was a time there that it's like, that's all we knew. Yeah. And it, granted, it was a conflict that didn't seem to affect us very much at home. Like, it's not like World War II where you felt the war right. in mm-hmm. every part of our society. But like, that's our our mentality was just that's where we are. That's yeah. where we are is we're just always in conflict. Um, how do we make that shift yeah. in our way of thinking? Yeah. And I think that takes a lot of creativity and stepping back for a moment and self-reflecting and again, just being creative. I, I guess I feel like this is another place where it's it's moments like the sit-ins of the civil rights movement or the march across the Pettus Bridge in Selma that is instructive again to me. One, because the people who did those events intended them not to be standalone events that would like, we they, they knew that just walking across a bridge wasn't going to end civil rights, but that it would be provocative. It, it would it, it would inspire people's imagination to go, huh, they did this. And what are the things that made that move or this event work? What are other things that we could mm-hmm. do that would be similar and have the same flavor or tenor that, okay, we're not looking to kill people. We're not looking to be violent, but what are things and the idea that it would change the way people thought that something like that, when it makes headlines, gets people's attention so that other people in towns halfway across the country would go, huh, there are things in my way of life that aren't just, and that's probably making conflict in my community. What is, and it, it almost is intentionally forcing people to start picking at that thread, knowing that it's uncomfortable to start pulling at threads because the, the old status quo then starts to unravel. But th- that's the idea is sometimes you have to dismantle something so that something new can be built or, or put up in its place. And I think that's a part of what the work of peacemaking really is. It's it, that it requires doing things that will make people stop and think. It, one of the, one of the um, uh, current examples of people who do that in, in my world that I, I pay attention to from time to time is, um, I don't know if you know the work of Shane Claiborne, um, mm-hmm who was uh oh my goodness he's written a bunch of stuff he's uh part, founder of the simple way in philadelphia but the, uh he does work with a group called raw tools that literally they will go to a down uh, to a, a city and people will bring in uh old weapons like you know guns or machine guns or assault rifles or things like that and they will not only dismantle them but then make them into farm tools not with the thought that like these are going to be the nicest farm tools ever because you could get cheaper farm tools at your local tractor supply um but with that image of like how do we get people's attention and how do we create yeah this is what it could look like so instead of having these tools that could have hurt somebody um what if we what if we said the cycle stops with us we refuse to uh continue to, to have weapons just for the sake of being able to kill other people um and it, it those kind of things uh, are are I guess uh, helpfully provocative to me, but like it also it also it feels so very clearly like in the spirit of Isaiah too, because you know there's swords into plowshares, except it's you know gun barrels into plowshares. Or um, some years ago, 
we got through in our churches um, through church world service. They made these, um, they called it shells and the bells. And I guess they'd taken old um, artillery shells from Cambodia, from the killing fields. And they'd made them into like little bells they'd put on their livestock to, you know, for herding livestock, but you could buy some or have them here. And that went to support the ministry as well. But it's such a cool image of like these things that have been used in this horrific massacre in Cambodia during the time of the Khmer Rouge could be transformed into something useful. And just having one on my shelf, like, then challenged me like every time I saw it like man if if people could take these instruments of war and violence and bloodshed and turn them into something else that was useful what am I doing with my day what are what are we doing in this bloodthirsty culture that we live in can I ask in your congregations or in congregations where you have served before where do you see the work of peacemaking at that kind of level? I mean, like, we're not talking, none of us get to be in the United Nations brokering peace treaties, but at the level of the local community, what does it look like to be people who take this peace message from the prophets seriously? So in my context, I um, I work just a couple miles out of um, Philadelphia city limits. So like, I'm not in Philadelphia, that's not my mailing address. It's, Mm -hmm. but like, we are in a township that butts up against Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And um, so this is the first context I've served. That's not just been um, white, straight, middle class, (laughs) like at all. And um, so there's a lot of diversity in my congregation and um, they've been reconciled in Christ since almost reconciled in Christ was created in the, okay. what was that, the late 80s? And so for, for folks who don't immediately know that, that's an intentional LGBTQIA affirming uh, stance. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they have now also included that to also be inclusive of people of color and um yeah, I think primarily people of color as well. Okay. Um, so like it's now moved beyond just LGBTQIA inclusion and welcoming and affirming and advocating, but also people of color. Okay. And um, so that's something that my congregation takes pretty seriously, mm-hmm. um, that we are a place that is welcome to people who have been told in various places in the church that they are not welcome. Mm-hmm. And that that they are full partners in our ministry and not just tokens, but that they are encouraged to take leadership positions, that they are encouraged to also proclaim the gospel and share in communion and baptism and um, everything. So that is our one of our biggest parts Mm -hmm. of how we see ourselves in ministry Mm -hmm. is that we are a place of welcome. Okay. That we are a place of inclusivity, yeah. um, that we are a safe place for yeah. people to come and be in community. It seems to me like, especially as, as we're recording, reverberating in the headlines is the shooting in the uh, uh, nightclub in uh, Colorado Springs. And while details of that aren't all 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 fleshed out or known, it certainly seems like, and it brings to mind the pulse shooting or for that matter, the, the racially motivated shooting in Buffalo back earlier. I mean, like we can't escape the memory of recent mm-hmm. shootings where clearly somebody had in mind, 
there are people I see as a threat. They're different from me in you know wh- whatever way, whether we're talking sexuality, whether we're talking about race, whether we're talking about nationality or whatever, like the El Paso shooting, and that there is this impulse in the culture in which you live to see otherness or difference as you are therefore a threat and I have to get rid of you because I'm worried if I don't get you, you're going to get me. And the choice in your congregation is to 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 stand against that intent and, and to realize that may be provocative. That may mean conflict emerges as people deal with that, but that it's an intentional choice to say, we're going to pr- and break that cycle of seeing otherness as threat or otherness as because you're different. Someone has the right to bring weapons in and shoot you or something like that. And so that even though at first that might not immediately look like a peacemaking thing, it really is because it's about s- telling a different story. The difference doesn't mean we have to see you as us and them. Right. Erica, what what do you see peacemaking look like in the congregational level where you are? I'm still, you know, listening to Sarah and trying to think, because I'm still very new to where I'm currently at and even trying to think back to where I previously served, because as Sarah mentioned, you know, this is her first where she's not, you know, straight, white, middle class area. (laughs) That's all I have served. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think maybe in some ways it's not quite as inclusive, Sarah, as what your church is, but um, maybe more inclusive on a socioeconomic stance is um, our meals that we do twice a month at one of my churches for the mm-hmm. Wimber Area Community Kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, that it it is a free meal open to anyone, and we get folks that come to that meal because. They might not get a home cooked meal otherwise. Um, we have folks that come to that meal because they're lonely. Mm-hmm. And so they come just for fellowship and for community. Uh, and we've got folks that have shown up to that meal driving Cadillacs, and we've had folks show up to that meal driving old beaters that are 40 years old. And once you walk in those doors and, and you get a meal, we don't care if, you know, you. Your gender, your your gender identity, your socioeconomic background, anything, we're feeding you mm-hmm. because you came hungry for food. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's the closest I can think of off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. I'm sure as I'm I'm here longer and as if I have more time to think about it, I could find some other ways or maybe even help to sure. try to make them see other ways yeah. to to do that in a more practical manner. Um, but that's kind of what sticks at the top of my head right now. You know, it's interesting as, as you mentioned the challenge of what does it look like to be about peaceful work when your setting feels a little more, um, homogenous rather than sometimes in circumstances of diversity, like you are forced more because it's mm-hmm. right in your face. Like, how do we all find ways to get along with each other? Whereas if it's pretty homogenous, it's, it's easy to like, well, we don't have to think about that or that, that's not our problem. But I think about, um, over the years, I've become more and more and more a fan of um, the writing of Wendell Berry, uh, not just his novels and his poetry, but his essays. And he, he writes out of rural Kentucky um, mm-hmm. and made the deliberate choice after being sort of a celebrated intellectual in um, other circles, made the choice and has for decades lived in rural Kentucky. Um, but to read his writing, he, he, he has such a, a clear sense of like, in particular, it should be people who are uh, committed to agriculture as a way of life, who can be about 
peacemaking and peace, especially the sense of peace as what you were touching on earlier, Sarah, about harmony with the rest of creation. Um, and so much of his writing is sort of a screed against um, turning agriculture entirely into business to make money. Yeah. And instead of, you know, like, so like you can make a bigger buck if you do factory farming and um, you know, giant swaths of land where you never really know your own land um, and you're willing to put whatever chemicals in the ground because it'll make a bigger buck now, but you burned the land 20 years from now and you can't use it. But he advocates a better way of life, even though that means you might have to live with it. Mm-hmm. It takes longer. It's slower. It's a slower pace. And you have to know your own land and, you know, even basic ancient stuff like crop rotation and, um, you know, knowing your soil and being willing to invest in just creating more topsoil rather than what will make a quicker buck. But um is the more I read him, the more I think he's certainly in tune with what the prophets have in mind when they talk about peace, not just as we're done with armies and wars, but also with being in right relationship with creation. Um, but that to read Wendell Berry, he sees that as the, there are things that we humans can do that help move us in that direction, that we don't have to wait for an act of God. It, mm-hmm. Wendell Bear would say things like creation itself is the act of God that we just need to quit monkeying with, you know, <laughs> like if we just quit putting monkey wrenches in the gears, like um, that, that God's creation is, is created to be resilient that if we live in balance and harmony with it, we would not be uh, destroying it the way we are. And it would not feel like it's resisting or pushing back in the ways that maybe it does. Um, but I've often found his voice surprising because he can be such a strong voice for, both peace in a like international sense and, and about um, that sense of peace, but also how, how very, very attuned he is to peacemaking with creation, even though he comes from a context that is pretty homogenous, white rural, you know, in, mm-hmm. in Kentucky. And yet very, very clearly has this clear sense of what peaceableness might look like there. And having lived in rural Kentucky, they are all like, you talk to the, far- I didn't know a ton of farmers down there because I was in seminary. So I mostly hung yeah. out with seminarians, but like, the interactions I did have with some of the, the more local people of Kentucky, yeah. they take that very seriously Yeah, down there um, because they, they, I jokingly call it God's country. Yeah, <laughs> Anywhere I live is God's country, but like they, they believe it down there and they take that quite seriously. Even their big farms yeah. um, are very more, very aware that, that you might not find as, as much awareness even going just a little bit further west. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I think I think some of that's the topography too. When you get into big flat states where mm-hmm. there aren't the boundaries of hills and rivers and mountains that make it that, that force farms to be smaller in places like where there's hills and mountains. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's easy for it to to forget to have that amnesia about the land. Yeah. Well, yeah. and it's just Appalachian culture in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just that pride in the land, and you know, your family has lived in the same hauler for centuries you know or at least a century and so you want to take care of the land that your family has had in their you know in your line for yeah 50 100 years this actually calls to mind uh, a line from one of the prophets that we haven't talked about directly yet, but is a, a riff on one we have talked about. We talked earlier about that passage from Isaiah about people beating their swords into plowshares. And in early in the book of Micah, 
it seems like he's just like copying from Isaiah or Isaiah was copying from him because <laughs> almost word for word, you get that same imagery phrase by phrase. But then Micah adds this additional piece about um, in this new re- in this new reality where we can beat our swords into plowshares, where everybody will have their own vine and their own fig tree and nobody will make them afraid anymore. And it's like this image of like, when you've got your own land and your own farm, you've got what you need, you know, you, mm-hmm. your needs are going to be taken care of. And there's good value in the work and the sweat you can put into taking care of your own land. And you don't have to worry about conquering somebody else's farm or buying up somebody else's farm. If everybody's got enough, then nobody has to be constantly afraid of who's got more, who's got better. Um, but that image, it, it's like uh, Micah seems to imagine that like, if we could just have a reality where everybody has their own farm and everybody has their own place to live and you don't have to be afraid, like l- how many other things would not be problems because you would mm-hmm. have this sense of security that doesn't depend on your your success is my loss. I think it's that zero sum game thinking that is so much of the violence and the, the mentality of war likeness in our in our culture that Micah is offering an alternative to. I think because like all of these advent words that we're taking a look at have a tendency to be buzzwords or like words that we put on a fancy sign and we hang in our living room or something (laughs) yeah um it's it's easy to to not stop and think about what it actually means yeah um i think with peace especially because we talk about it in our worship services and at least in those of us like lutherans where we have liturgy Mm -hmm. like every week I end the worship service with go in peace and, and then there's something like, remember the poor, Mm -hmm. share the good news, um, serve the Lord. Like that, that, that second part always, it tends to change, but that first part is always go in peace. Mm -hmm. And because we say it so often, I think, I know I'm guilty of not stopping and thinking about what that means. Yeah. Um, But I think since we talked about it today, you know, I want to end with go in peace, but I want you all to like, think what that means. <laughs> yeah. Go in peace. Yeah. Serve yeah. the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. If there's, if there's value in this series for us, and especially like for us, as we're talking through all these things, I, I hope that's what this does for me as well. And and for folks who listen, not that by the end of the series, we'll figure out how to establish world peace or create joy for everybody, but rather that maybe there's enough to make us stop and think so that these words that otherwise can, can be just buzzwords or, vacuous terms we turn into home decor <laughs> um that we might be people who take seriously yeah what what would it look like to be people who live in peace or who practice peace where we are at at the local level as well as the community or the the national level i appreciate both of you being part of that conversation and uh we invite you who are listening to join us for more conversation here through our un- unsentimental advent here on crazy faith talk see y'all Bye.